we're going to be in two texts. Well, we're going to be in a lot of texts, um, but we're going to start in two texts, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14, and Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. So if you want to go ahead and go there, uh, while you're going there, let me just say I'm glad that you're here on this 4th of July. Uh, we are continuing a series called The Core, where we are looking at um, the truths of the Bible. What is the core of what the Bible says? What are the most important things that you and I need to know from Genesis to Revelation? And so we've kind of been using our statement of faith to help guide us in those truths. And today we will look at two parts of that statement of faith, two core truths. The first one is God's sovereign grace. And the second one is the freeness of salvation. And so let me read our text for you. I'm going to read first Ephesians 1, and then I'll read a portion of the statement of faith, read Mark 1, and then the second portion of our statement of faith. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his Grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So our first thing we'll look at today is sovereign grace. And so let me read this paragraph to you. We believe that it was the eternal purpose of God, which he graciously planned before creation to choose people to be regenerated and saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of our sovereign good pleasure. This is perfectly consistent with the free agency of man and is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. It utterly excludes boasting, and promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, trust in God, and active imitation of his free mercy. It is the foundation of Christian assurance. And then Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is the freeness of salvation. We believe that the blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel, that it is the immediate duty of all to accept the gospel with a repentant and obedient faith. There is nothing that prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel, which results in condemnation. And let me read one more text to you. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Well, one of the things that makes me really excited about pastoring this church, pastoring 
Renewal Church, and I've just began to notice this in the last few months, is that God has brought a very, very diverse group of people here. Like it seems that as I talk to different people and I get to know different people, that we have people all over the spectrum here when it comes to their experience with the scriptures, when it comes to their history and experience with the church. Like we have former Baptists here, Methodists, Church of Christ, like the list goes on. We have people who were saved as kids, and they grew up like you don't remember a time when you weren't in church. And then we have people who were hurt by the church some way or another, and you left the church for a while, but now you're back and you're finding healing here at Renewal. We have people that that left the church because of their sin, and now God has brought them back, and you're finding and seeing for the first time grace, the grace of of God. And it has been exciting to dive deep into God's word with you and shepherd a diverse group of people, honestly, through some really weighty conversations, through some weighty text, some complex conversation, whether it's the Trinity or the inerrancy of the scriptures or the topic like today. It's, it's been so good to have that conversation honestly, but with a group of people who are willing to have it and willing to do it with grace. And that people are willing to look at something, even if it hasn't lined up with the tradition that you grew up in, that you're, you're willing to take a serious look at the scriptures with us and at, by the Spirit's guiding, ask the question, okay, what's true? And what I'm finding is that there are a lot of people here that you're beginning to see the tensions of scripture and you aren't afraid to wrestle with it. Because for me, and I know there's a lot of you, I am fascinated by the tensions found in scripture. Like, we should never stop asking the question, why? Right? We should never stop asking the question, why? Like, how does this work? What does Paul or Jesus mean when he says this? And what happens when you couple this with this? And how does it all work together? Like, you should never just believe something because I say it. God is our authority, and he has given us his word so that we can know him. And he has given us the spirit to help us make sense of what we are reading. So we should never stop asking why. But The other side of that coin is that there are some questions in Scripture that honestly aren't fully answered. There's some mystery here. And this really bothers me sometimes. And I know that it bothers a lot of you. Like, we want things in black and white. But the reality is, God doesn't make things black and white. Not all the time. That's why it's faith is required to be a follower of Christ. That there is trust in the unknown things of God. And faith is something, honestly, that we in the Western world have a disposition to constantly fight against. Because we are great, great, great children, great, great grandchildren of the Enlightenment. So you're like, okay, why is he talking about the Enlightenment? Well, the Enlightenment was a movement that became popular in the 18th century, and they believed that human reasoning could overcome ignorance and superstition. And their main target in this was religion. Guys like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, these guys that were students of the Enlightenment, they brought into society for the first time this idea of self-determination and inherent freedom. And to this day, if you look around, these values are engraved into our culture. You see it everywhere. The elevation of self, the belief in freedom, and the desire for individualism are present in our everyday culture. And those things aren't inherently bad. But if we aren't careful they can be a stumbling block for us. Now, here is the tension underneath all tensions. As a logic-based, 
self-elevated and individual-focused society, we tend to be trapped by the unexplainable mysteries of the Bible. What do I mean by that? Let me read Psalm 115.3 again. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And let me read a couple more just to kind of in the same theme. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Jeremiah 10.23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who who walks to direct his steps. So as children of the Enlightenment, we have trouble with this idea. God does all that he pleases. The God who has all authority, the Alpha and Omega, he can create, destroy, and recreate. He can do whatever he wants with the mountains, with the sea, with the birds in the air, with the worms in the ground, and he can do whatever he wants with me. And he can do whatever he wants with you. And here's the deal. He doesn't have to tell you why. He doesn't. He does not owe you an explanation. But we, as self-elevated and individualistic society, have a hard time accepting that. We read that he can do all that he pleases, and many times our response is, oh no, we have rights. <laughs> what? <laughs> he can't do anything he wants. Like, at minimum, he needs to explain his reasoning, right? Now, why do I mention that? There is a high probability that by the time we finish this morning, you will walk out of this place with a wrestling in your soul with the God revealed in the scriptures. And you may leave asking the question, why? Why does God do that? And the reality is that no one may be able to answer that question fully. And you're going to have to wrestle with that, that there is some mystery and some unknowns about the things that we will talk about today. And so my prayer for our faith family is that we can do two things that seem like they're opposite of each other, but they're not. First is that we would never stop asking the question, why? That we would continue to study the scriptures together and that we would continue to ask the Spirit for his help and listen for his leading. And second, that God would grant us the faith required required to trust him, required to trust him in the unexplainable things, in the mysteries of the scriptures. That at the end of the day, self would not be elevated, but the glories of Christ would be elevated. Because in order to understand the things that we're going to talk about today, we're going to need help. We're going to need help in the Spirit. Because look, these things that we're going to talk about have been studied, debated, and written about for hundreds of years. And to this day, there is still not agreement on them. It's still not agreement. So what I will not promise you is that we are going to figure out the tension between sovereign grace and the freeness of salvation. I can't do that. I can't promise, promise you that. But what I do want to show you is why both are good and why both are found in the revealed Word of God. So let me set the table. Just to be abundantly clear, here is what we will work from, the foundation. In Scripture, we have two truths. First, we have the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do all that he chooses to do, that he does all that he pleases to do. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's right and power. God, you have the right and you have the power to do what you decide to do. Then when he decides to do a thing, he does it, and no one can stop him. That's sovereignty, that God is sovereign over 
all creation. He is sovereign over the rest of your day, over the rest of your year. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, when you roll the dice on the table, God not only knows what the numbers will be, but he picks the numbers himself. And there are no events so small that he does not rule for his purposes. Now he's also sovereign over salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to the Lord for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And listen to what it says. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, this is just scratching the surface. We're going to get deeper on this. So that's the first truth. The second truth that we have is that in Scripture, you also see human responsibility for their decisions, that we are responsible for the decisions that we make. And those decisions have real results and real consequences. And those decisions can affect the course of future Events, Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And then Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So here the scriptures are saying, let the one who is thirsty come, let him come. That in order for the person to experience the water of life, they must come to Jesus. And if you want to be saved, then you must make a decision to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And then James 4.2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, why? Because you do not ask. So the assumption then is if you'll ask, then it will be granted. Luke 11, 9 and 10. And I tell you, listen to what Jesus says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then lastly, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Listen to what it says. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Again, this is just scratching the surface, but you can begin to see the tensions of the scripture. So here's a personal question I have wrestled with for years, even to this day sometimes. So I'm going to pose the question to you, and then I'm going to give my answer for the question at the end of our time together today. So first, I've got to give you some background. I was 16 when God saved me. No one in my family went to church. No one knew anything about God. Like, I didn't touch a Bible until I was 16, but God saved me at a youth camp. And I came home, and I began to talk to my parents about Jesus. And a year later, my mom finally decided to go to church with me. It was a big deal. So we went to First Baptist Church of Cuero down in South Texas, and being the traditional Baptist church that it was, after the sermon, the pastor, his name is Glenn Robertson, he's still there today, he stepped down from the pulpit, 
and stood at the end of the aisle, and he gave what's known as an invitation. Some of you may be familiar with this. And my mom got up out of her seat, and she went up to the front to receive Christ. It was awesome. So here's the question. Who is responsible for her, for her getting up out of her seat to surrender her life to Christ? Did God in his sovereignty predetermine that that would happen? Or did she make a decisive choice to do that? That's the question. And I'll tell you what I think at the end. Sorry to leave you on the cliffhanger. Here's the outline for the rest of the morning. I want you to have that in the back of your mind, that question in the back of your mind as we walk through this. And so here's the outline for the rest of our time together. In order to understand this tension, first, we have to look at the gravity of sin. The gravity of sin. Second, we will look at God's immeasurable sovereign grace. And third, we'll look at our responsibility to gladly respond. So that's our three points, okay? The gravity of sin, God's immeasurable sovereign grace, and our responsibility to gladly respond. So first, the gravity of sin, that in order to fully understand sovereign grace, we must first look at the deep effects that sin has on you and me, that it has on the human condition. And I'm going to show you five trappings of sin. And when I say trapped, I mean I want you to picture chains, like you are in bondage, locked in a box, there is no way for you to get out. Because of sin, you are trapped. And here's the first one. The first trapping is of sin is that we are trapped by legal guilt and divine condemnation. Romans 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. And here's what he says. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So here it is, plain as day. All people are under sin. And because of that, there is no one, no one that seeks after God. So here's what he's saying. We are incapable of looking within ourselves, identifying our own sin, and saying, man, there is a problem here. And to fix that problem, I need to seek after God. He's saying that is an impossibility. It cannot happen. He goes on in Romans 3, 19, and he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, (laughs) and the whole world, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the problem with the law is that it reveals that we are guilty before God. Because in the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with his people, and he gives them the law. And he says, if you can keep these laws, then we'll, we will be okay. But the fact that they have the law reveals that they can't keep the law. <laughs> Therefore, they know they're not okay with God. And since they have broken God's law, there needs to be judgment for that. So follow this, okay? I know. Follow this. Attempting to follow the law reveals that you cannot follow the law. And our failure to follow the law reveals our sin. And sin ultimately leads to what? Death. Sin ultimately leads to death. So we are guilty before him, we are condemned by him, and we are separated from him. So because we are incapable as sinful people to keep God's law, we are condemned and thus 
cannot seek God. We cannot fully know God, and we cannot seek him. Do you see the trap? We can't get out. We're in chains. There's no way to open the box. Our mouths are stopped, and we will be held accountable. John 3.36, Jesus says this. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see him. And here's what he says. But the wrath of God, what? Remains on him. So for it to remain, that implies that it was previously there, right? It implies that it was previously, it's not like you sin and then you receive the judgment of wrath. It remains because it already existed. Because you're trapped by legal guilt and divine condemnation. You are legally guilty before God. And it would be unjust for him to just go, oh well, not a big deal. Don't worry about it. He can't do that. He's a holy God. He cannot compromise himself. So sin must be punished. The second trap is that we are trapped by our love for the darkness. We are trapped by our love for the darkness. John 3 verse 19 says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved, people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, light is in the world, but people didn't even bother with it. Like light, light is in the world, but people didn't even bother with it. So it's not that light is lacking, but it's that light is hated and darkness is loved. Why? Why is darkness is loved? because their works were evil, because darkness tastes so good. And you know this, right? Darkness, sin, tastes so good. As someone who is trapped in the chains of sin, you love the dark. Darkness naturally tastes good to someone who is under the bondage of sin, and light tastes bitter. You cannot enjoy what tastes bitter to you. And because you are trapped by sin, the light cannot taste good to you. Jesus presses further in, uh, two chapters later in John chapter 5. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And he says, how can you believe? How, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So he's saying here, by asking how can you hear, what he's really saying is, you can't. By saying he, how can you, he's really saying, you can't. So Jesus, who is on his way to the cross, the sacrificial lamb, says, how can you believe? Like, how is it possible for you to believe when you want your own glory? He says, it's not possible. You're trapped. You are trapped by your love for the darkness. You want the praise of people. You cannot want to give glory to me. Next, we see that we are trapped by our hostility, our hostility towards God. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile, hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, what does he say? It cannot. 
It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So hostile, you're unfriendly, opposed to God. Your mind, when it thinks about God, opposes him. And so when God's law says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, Paul says, you can't. You can't do it. You cannot will it to happen. Cannot. You're incapable of loving God because you are hostile to him. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Next, we see that we're trapped by spiritual death. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Lifeless. And then I love John 3, verse 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, listen to what he says. It says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother womb, mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is referring to our spiritual death here, the death that happened when sin entered into the world. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, your current condition does not cut it. You can't do it. You must be born again. Last one. We are trapped by our blindness to Christ, by our blindness to Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, starting in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And listen to what he says. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have what? They would have not crucified the Lord of glory. So the question here is, now, why didn't they see glory in Jesus. When he was alive, why couldn't they identify that he was the Messiah? He gives you the answer in verse 13. He says, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And he says, the natural person, so the natural person, the one who is trapped by sin and whose mind is set on the flesh, the natural person does not Accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural person, the common person, the normal person does not accept God and they cannot understand him. You cannot accept what's wise when you see it as foolish. You can't. You can't accept that the Cowboys are the good team when you know to believe that is foolishness. You can't do it. And the natural person, <laughs> the natural person can only see a crucified Jesus as foolish. Let me say that again. The natural person can only see a crucified Jesus as foolish. So this is who we are. We are trapped in chains by our legal guilt before God. We are trapped by our love for the darkness. We are trapped by our hostility towards God. We are trapped by our spiritual death, and we are trapped by our blindness to Christ. So when we say sovereign grace, here's what we mean. Because of the trappings 
and chains of sin, we need a miracle outside of ourselves. That in order to be a son and daughter of God, we need help. We need the all-powerful, all-authoritative God to reach down and remove those chains from us, to open the box and let us out, to grab the hold of our shoulders, look us right in the face, and go, look, (laughs) open your eyes and see me. I am the author of salvation, and I have written your name in my book. That's sovereign grace, to look at us and go, you're mine. I've got you. It's God's immeasurable grace to us. So let me read to you Ephesians 1.7 again. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And it is, it is his will to show you his grace. And so the, to the trap of legal guilt, we look to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, 24, where he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And here's what he says. You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd, to the overseer of your soul. The finished work of Christ settled our legal guilt before God. He bore our sins in his body, and I couldn't pay that debt. You couldn't pay that debt. We were broken And by his wounds, God healed us. And it says we were straying like sheep. We were running away. That's what we do. We run away. But Jesus, the true shepherd, chases us down, grabs us, and says, I have you. You are mine. And the overseer of your soul takes you into his care, and he protects you. So you are no longer guilty before God, but because of the blood of Christ, He calls you innocent, and he calls you blameless. To the trap of your love for the darkness, we have 2 Timothy uh, 2, verses 25 and 26. The second half of verse 25, I'll start there. It says that God may perhaps grant them repentance. Let me read that. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after after being captured by him to do his will. So he's saying repentance is a gift from God. It is granted to you by God. So that moment that you understood the gravity of your sin, that it leads to death, that a life apart from Christ is void of joy and hope, that moment when you turn from your sin, you turn to Christ and and said, Jesus, I believe that you are better. I surrender my life to you. That act is granted to you by God. And it leads you to know the truth. And you no longer love the darkness. Now you are able to love the light. To the trap of our hostility towards God, we have Romans 8, 9. I'll start in verse 7 again. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And then what does 1 Corinthians 12 say about the Spirit? In verse 3, he says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And here's what he says. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So when you said Jesus is Lord for the first time, the Holy Spirit did that in you. The Holy Spirit isn't an angel who sits on your shoulder and whispers, do good things and don't do bad things. That's not what the Spirit does. The Spirit enters your heart and yells in your soul, Jesus is Lord. He loves you. Look at him. Look at his love. Look at his kindness. He reminds you who you are, and he reminds you who you aren't. He reminds you that you're a child of God, that the Spirit points you to Christ, because you can't do that yourself. To the trap of spiritual death, we have Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Think about it this way. When Jesus said to Lazarus, when he said to Lazarus, who was dead in that tomb, when he said to him, come forth, the command, the words created life. And he walked out of that tomb. His word has the power to move people from death to life, to the trap of spiritual blindness. We have 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, listen to what he says, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That light has shown in our hearts, and now we are able to see the face of Christ. And then last text here, Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I mean, what else can you say to this except Jesus? Thank you. Understanding the gravity of sin creates gratitude in our heart because we can't do it without him. We need him. However, that leads me to my last point. We have a responsibility to gladly respond to this. Mark 1, 14, I read it at the beginning. When Jesus shows up, it says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So see the responsibility here. Jesus shows up and he says, it's time. I'm here. Everything that has been done from Abraham to Moses to David to Ezekiel has all led to this moment. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then what does he tell the crowd? Repent. He wants them to respond, to act, to beat against the box that has them trapped. He wants you to break the chains. He wants you to fight, that we have a responsibility when we see the gospel proclaimed, when we see it in the text, when we hear it preached, to act, to respond, to look at our sin and say, no, I don't want it. I want you. My life is yours. Your response to the light exposing your sin matters.
it matters. So the question is, will you choose to continue to love the darkness or will you love the light? Let me read Luke eleven nine again. He says, I tell you, ask, ask him. Jesus, I, I, I want you. Will you help me understand what it means to follow you? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will, be, you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be open at this very moment, at this moment, while I am sharing the gospel with you, you have a responsibility to respond. Will you agree with what the scriptures say? Will you agree with what they say about you, what they say about your sin? And will you agree with what they say about Jesus? You have a responsibility to respond. Will you knock on the door, look at the grace of Jesus, and gladly receive it? Here's the reality. If your response didn't matter, then why am I even up here? (laughs) Like, what am I doing with my life? I could be making a whole lot more money doing anything else, right? (laughs) But the reality is, you need to hear this. You need to have your heart moved. If a person's individual response to the gospel did not matter, then why would we tell people about Jesus? Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? Look at that closely. Like, it does not say that since it is God who frees you from the chains and pulls you from the box that you are trapped in, that you are to do nothing. You have a responsibility to call on him. I have a responsibility to preach. Your response to the gospel matters. If it didn't matter, then we wouldn't have half of our New Testament. Half of your New Testament is Paul pleading with people to see Jesus as more worthy and more satisfying than the things of this world. Think about it. God blows up Paul's world on the road to Damascus, literally blinds him, opens his eyes and says, go, go and plead. Plead to to those who don't know him so that they might know. One of my favorite texts, Romans 11, 13, 14, it gives us a glimpse into Paul's strategy, Paul's mind, and it's fascinating. He says in Romans 11, 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And then he says this, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and, just, and thus save some of them. Look at that word somehow. Do you feel the weight in that word? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. He says, I've got to reach them. Somehow, somehow, so he strategizes. He thinks of ways that he can somehow get the Jews to understand the Messiah has come, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, the covenant he made with Abraham is fulfilled, he has made a new covenant, and we are free from the law. Somehow, 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 I've got to get them to understand this. Now, his strategy is weird. His thought process is, well, if I walk into a synagogue and tell them how many unclean Gentiles are enjoying their inheritance, then maybe they'll see it's a strange strategy, but he's doing something. And as sons and daughters of Christ, our hearts must break over the reality that there are people in this world who are still trapped by sin, that there are people who don't know what it means to be forgiven, to be loved, to be freed from their church, uh, from their chains. In church, somehow, somehow, we have to get through to them. Through our love, 
through our humility that we will sacrifice our money, our time, our comforts, so that somehow we might reach them. Now, keep in mind, this is the same Paul, same Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in what? In demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I mean, come on. Do you see it? It's the sovereign grace of God opening our eyes, and it's the responsibility to go, yes, I'm in. I choose. Jesus, I choose the gospel. So let me bring, this, bring us back to the question I asked you at the beginning. Who is responsible for my mom getting up out of her seat to surrender her life to Christ? Did God, in his sovereignty, predetermine that that would happen? Or did she make a decisive choice to do that? My answer, as I've been thinking about this and wrestling with this, my answer is yes. Yes to all of it. I don't believe that she would have gotten up and walked up to that pasture without God's sovereign grace. It was an impossibility. I prayed while sitting next to her, God, open her eyes and make her see. And he did. It was a miracle. He did it. But she also heard the scriptures preached. And she got up out of her seat and she told Glenn Robertson, yes, I want Jesus. And I'll never forget the hymn that was playing during that invitation. You guys know what hymns are? (laughs) These are the lyrics to the hymn that was playing, and I want you to listen to it. Softly and tenderly, you know this one? Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. He's calling for you And for me, I love this line, see on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. And Jesus earnestly and tenderly called her home. Five years later, she would go home for good. And today, I believe that she is home with her heavenly father because he chose her. He called her home. It's because of the grace of God. And so to each of you, I I give the exact same call, and I pray the exact same prayer I prayed while I was sitting next to my mom during that invitation. God opened their eyes and make them see. He's the only one who can do it. And then here's the call from Jesus to you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. You want satisfaction? You want hope? You want salvation? You want to be saved? He says, knock, and it will be opened. Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, Come home. The question is now, how will you respond?